and welcome to another Toronto International Film Festival focus on The More the Merrier. I've got a full show for you today, so keep it locked to 89.5 FM to hear interviews with Carolina Markowitz about her film Charcoal, which screens in the platform section. And according to TIFF, platform champions bold directorial visions. And uh, this film, Charcoal, certainly is that. After that, you'll hear from documentary filmmaker Stephanie Johns about her film Maya and the Wave, which screens in the TIFF Docs section. And this is not only a beautiful film, it challenges the sexism that's part of the surfing world with its subject, Maya Rivera. And then we'll finish up with something from the Shortcuts Program 2 section. And this is a film called Baba with a beautiful young actor who is playing the role of a young boy in the midst of a very traumatic experience but it is definitely worth seeing if you can. And I had a wonderful chat about the subject matter with director Mbithi Masia. And within the hour, you're going to hear music from Melanie Durant, Bang Bang. You're also going to hear Mishy Me and Break the Rules. And then we're going to finish up with Amai Kuda with the track Complacency. So again, you're listening to The More the Merrier with Donna G, Toronto International Film Festival. For all information, www.tiff.net, www.tiff.net. As for me, you can reach me at TMTM with Donna G on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Enjoy the show. was five and he was six. We rode on horses made of sticks. He wore black and I wore white. He would always win the fight. Bang, bang. He shot me down. Bang, bang. I hit the ground. Bang, bang. That awful sound. Bang, bang. My baby shot me down. 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 Seasons came and changed the time. When I grew up, I called him mine. He would always laugh and say, remember when we used to play? Bang, bang. I shot you down. Bang, bang. You hit the ground. Bang, bang. That awful sound. Bang, bang. I used to shoot you down. My baby shot me 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 down. Music played, our people say, just for me, the church bells rang. Keep a big gun in a shivy bang, bang bang 
to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G. Joining me by Zoom is Carolina Markowitz, who is a Sao Paulo-based screenwriter and director. We're here to talk about her film Charcoal, which is set in an area that you're familiar with, right, Carolina? Yes, it is. I I grew up in the countryside in a city close by to the city portrayed in the film. And so it's an area that I'm pretty familiar with that I spent a long time of my life. Help me with the pronunciation of the town. Is it Joanopolis? Joanopolis. Joanopolis. Okay. Brazilian Portuguese and I are not friends. And read it because I understand a bit of Spanish, but the pronunciation is so different. No, it's fine. Brazilian Portuguese is, is, is easy to, to be friends with, so <laughs> you'll learn. I like the sound of it, though. I do like the sound of it. So this film, according to the synopsis that I read um, and was expecting, is about a family who is living in the countryside, and they make a deal and accept a convict into their home um, because they're poor and they need the money. So that is what I expected. So let's talk about that before we get into some other revelations in the film. The, the family dynamic is quite interesting because the mother, uh, she cleans the house, she takes care of the the animals in the yard. She, you know, has a father who had a stroke who's... Um, you know, bedridden that she has to deal with. She has a child who's who speaks his mind and <laughs> she has a husband who doesn't really pay any attention to her, even though she tries and tries to, you know, be sexy for him and get him to notice her. How do you take this family and move them into the, into the area where they reach for your screenplay? Was it always this follow through from the family and then other elements entered into it? Or did you always know where you wanted to end up? Mm. Well, I guess the end, It. Uh, I have been working in the script for years, five years. Oh, okay. And uh, the family were was always a very important part of the script. But uh, initially the film were was more focused on the that organization that was specialized in hiding people. Uh, and then it became more focused on the guy who is, uh, who gets hidden, who is not exactly convicted, I would say. He has a, 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 a threat on his head or something like that more than... yeah. Um, by justice or something like that. I, right, I he's, a, he's a drug dealer with a price on his head. Exactly. Yeah. As time goes by, I I wrote many drafts of the screenplay, and at some point, the family was the main point, especially the mother, uh, who had who has this very uh, important role in the family. And then I thought the the story should be about this family and about this environment and about what they represent in terms of appearances, about social roles. And, you know, I, I thought it could be a good uh, way to portray this, this let's say, um, traditional family environment. <laughs> right. The, tradi the traditional family is how they appear from the outside. Yeah. So let's talk about this very strong woman, um, the character of Irene. Tell me about the casting of Mab Jenkins. Well, Maevi as well as... Oh, Maevi. Okay. 
You're no, teaching me. My no, 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 no. <laughs> you are absolutely right. I mean, I would say maybe too if I if I was speaking English is because I, you know, I, as I I know her very well, and you know, everyone calls her Maeve. She says that her name is Maeve, but her name is like you know, like calling me Carolina. It's fine, totally fine. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, so she I, she has been invited to do the film from the very beginning and I was honored that she accepted this challenge it's a challenge it's a difficult character completely different different than her in all the ways possible and Cesar Bordon who plays Miguel the dealer also was since from the very beginning in the film so both of them uh, have been you know uh, creating with me things and thinking about the film from a long time and reading drafts and everything. So, and we got, we are very close, the three of us, and we, they didn't know each other. They got to know uh, during, during the film. And well, me and my, we, we have a very strong partnership. She, she's in my other film as well. I shot another film with her in which she's also the main actress. Um, well, What's that film big... called? Tall. Tall. Okay. All right. I'll look out for it. It's not, it's not ready yet. It will be next year, hopefully. Okay. All right. I love her as an actress, so I'm looking forward to seeing her again. Awesome. So, uh, the mother, Irene, she's in the country. She's, is this an actress who's familiar with, with plucking chickens and, you know, being in the countryside? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to laugh. It's because it's so funny because she's a vegan. She's very, oh my goodness, for animal rights. So, so strongly she doesn't get even close to eating meat and she's completely against it. So it was such a challenge for her because she's terrified of everything, you know, like this kind of thing, like uh -huh. to be close to a, a chicken in that situation was something that she tells me that she got like uh, problems in her stomach for months after the film. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> You know, whoever made that chicken dinner did a good job because it looked delicious. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then we have we have Irene and, you know, I go along with Irene. I see what she's doing every day. She works very, very hard. And then you have this uh, little rascal of a son, Jean. Yeah, Jean. Jean, um, who talks back to her and he's a strong character as well. Where did you find this little boy? Well, it was very curious because uh, in, in Charcoal, I work with very experienced and very talented professional actor, actors, such as Maev, such as Camila, who plays Luciana, such as Cesar, and non-actors that were from the city and that didn't even want to be actors, some people that we found randomly. And we wanted to have this mix in the film. So Jean was a boy. I, I am very close to my location manager, who's a friend of mine, and he scouts locations and sometimes even people to to play in, in my films. And then one day he was scouting location, and then he found that boy uh, playing soccer in a field, and he was teasing his brother very provocatively, and he was like, oh... You, he, he sent me like a video of him did by his mobile and he was like, oh, you are going to like this boy. <laughs> and I was looking for, you know, and then I, I fell in love with him. He's amazing. He's a son of a family that lives in the city that work in, in actual charcoal factory that ha have a very hard life. He's fantastic. Yeah. His family must be so proud of, of him. What, yeah. did they, what did they think when you approached them to say, we want your son to act in a movie? Well, uh, I think it was such a, a, a completely different universe that they, they became, you know, trying to understand a bit more what it was and, and what it was about, what was going to happen. But Jan was so happy and I mean, he, he's a natural, he's so talented and it's impressive. So I think he was enjoying so much that at some point uh, they 
they were very enthusiastic too about him being very happy doing that as well and so they were they were indeed proud of him mm-hmm. yeah they must be because there are scenes where he is uh, where you you know shoot him on his own and he owns the the frame we see this little boy wandering around acting like a natural little boy uh playing with his friends you know getting into trouble all of that and he does it so naturally he he's he's incredible um and then we move on to the husband in the family uh Jairo how do you pronounce his his last name is it just Romulo Braga yes Romulo Braga okay Rom- say that again Romulo Braga Romulo Braga okay <laughs> and um he's the husband and you know he he claims that he's working hard he brings home money but he's indifferent to his wife and um so you know something is going on with him there's whispers in the village that you know he's going around with with other women but when the um when the drug lord comes and hides out in the house that's when we sort of get this uh sort of challenge of masculinity can you tell me about those scenes with the two characters involved uh, it was very interesting to to do the scene they are very open and good actors so it was like this is very uh, i always say when i grew up in the countryside that sometimes it's easier if you are a murderer than if you are gay you know in terms of people judging you in this in these terms you know so it's mm-hmm. something very such a taboo in conservative little cities here in brazil so i think it should be they they are in love with with each other and it was clear that they both loved each other and if they you know had the possibility of being together if one was a man and the other a woman they will surely be much more happily married than they are with their wives you know this mm-hmm. something that you know were, were was very clear to to us and i think they they were pretty um homolo this actor is from uh a small city as well and you know and even pedro too so they are quite familiar with this with this dynamics too so we kind of spoke a lot and everything that the desire versus the 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 forbidden and what's not allowed and everything this was very important in that scenes and the desire and the love between them is is actually some of the few only true love that people demonstrate that the characters demonstrate so it should be we needed this to be felt so mm-hmm. yeah because the you know the triangle of Miguel and Jairo and Pedro as man is very interesting because there's a scene where Miguel does something and you know he said he's testing him him where he says oh who's the man of the house and yeah i didn't expect uh the gay theme to to come up it was very unexpected in the film but it was fascinating as well to see what was going on because typically you would expect the husband to be you know fooling around with with a woman it's repressed exactly he's repressed the wife is repressed because she can't get his attention even though there's a scene where you know she goes to the beauty parlor and it breaks my heart because you wanted to tell her that's not going to make a difference <laughs> and it's very sad because you know that's the life that she's been dealt that's the life that she's going to continue to live your film is making its a uh, world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival are you nervous about the reaction because you know this is a a film that's set in Brazil you have mm-hmm. gay themes what what are your thoughts in terms of the reaction you mean yeah in, yeah, yeah. In Toronto or here in Brazil in Toronto both let's go with both mm, well i'm very anxious and curious and excited and afraid and everything all together to to know how it will be when the film is born to the world i'm very excited to show it in Toronto Toronto has like this amazing audience who enjoys film who go to the movies 
and you know participates a lot in the festival i was lucky enough to be in the festival three four times actually before that three with short films and one uh, in the talent lab so you know i i've been to a lot of sessions and mm -hmm. And it fascinates me all the time how audience is incredible. And, you know, I, I really love the festival. So, yes, I'm very excited about the premiere. And here in Brazil, I think the film is very critical about uh, very a lot of things that goes on here, the, the conservative way of thinking, politics and religion. So it may have some reactions, yes, but, you know, that's the, that's the idea of the film to make us reflect a bit about the status quo yeah about you know the what is seen from the outside as opposed to what is happening on the inside and even with the character of the the the, the nurse like the neighborhood nurse that goes around from place to place and everybody think oh she's doing such a wonderful job and then <laughs> you know you look at her character and you realize she is not as she appears to be exactly yeah it's so. pretty much what you are saying about the appearance and this is says a lot about you know what i felt when i was younger and lived in the countryside that you have to play a role and sometimes it's not exactly like that to fit something and in a good or in a bad way of course this is a fable a story created but it says what you said says a lot about the film and what we wanted to bring out yeah, because with the drug kingpin in the house, everybody has to pretend now that uh, he's not there. Yeah. And the changes that this brings about in the family and even in the neighborhood is remarkable. You did a fantastic job of taking us on that journey and mm -hmm. you provided us with a lot of surprises that are going to make the audience sit up and think, oh, this isn't where I thought it was going. <laughs> Great to hear that. I'm so happy you, you think this way. Yes, it's a wonderful film. I'm very excited for you to be screening it at the Toronto International Film Festival. So Carolina, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about your film. Thank you so much, Donna. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and I hope to speak again soon. And that was my chat with screenwriter-director Carolina Markowitz. The first screening of Charcoal takes place Sunday, September 11th at the Tiff Bell Lightbox number 2 at 9.45 p.m. But for all things Tiff, www.tiff.net. Yeah!
Next is my Q&A with director Stephanie Johns of the documentary Maya and the Wave, which explores the life of surfer Maya Rivera. I call it a Q&A because it wasn't an actual interview as it was an exchange of questions and answers. Here now is my interview with Stephanie Johns. Hi, this is Stephanie. I'm so sorry we weren't able to connect in person, but thank you for making it work. My pleasure, Stephanie, and I'm so glad you're able to do this Q&A with me. Now, I'm watching the film Maya and the Wave, and I'm not a surfer. You are a surfer. But I was scared every time you showed off the cliff and those waves at Nazare. What were your first thoughts when you saw the waves in Portugal? Um, the first time I went to Nazare, I was just in awe. I fell in love with it. It's so spectacular. And you, you walk out on that cliff and you really, your eyes sort of need to adjust to realize how, how big the waves actually are and the scale of it all. It's, it's spectacular. The mist from the waves actually lands on you in the cliff and... I just fell in love with it and I thought, wow, this is going to be a pretty, um, a pretty spectacular place to spend time and make a film. Stephanie, I'm curious to know how working as a director of photography on the documentary Venus and Serena help you with the filming of Maya and the Way. Yeah, so I worked as a cinematographer on the documentary and that was an awesome experience for me to understand how to work with athletes and understanding their schedules, you know, how they think, their mindset, you know, thinking about when they are open to being filmed and when not, and also to help me understand the pressures that are on athletes pretty consistently and how to um, work with that and not get in the way at the wrong time. So that was a great experience and um, I think it gave me some good insight into figuring out how and when to film with Maya. It seems as if both you and Maya Gabera's life is one big metaphor for surfing. The personal highs, the lows, the moments of joy happening alongside the moments of sadness. You had a leak in your apartment. Your sister was in treatment for cancer. Her husband died in a surfing accident. And Maya was riding high with Red Bull sponsoring her. And she was a surfing champion. And then a major accident stalled her career and left her with anxiety. Anyone would have understood if you stepped back from the film. Why didn't you? Yeah, so there were a lot of highs and lows in the last decade. It was a 10-year project making this film, both in Maya's life and in my life as well. And I think one of the main reasons that I stuck with it and felt it was important to see the film through was because I really believe in Maya and the message that she has to share. I felt that she's a phenomenal athlete who was not... uh, receiving the recognition and the respect that she deserved because she's a woman in a very male-dominated sport. And I didn't want to let her down. I wanted to make a great film about someone who really deserved to have a great film made about them. And I think it's, it's an important story for women and girls to be able to see a woman who, you know, struggles against the patriarchy and ultimately succeeds in achieving her dream and surfing the biggest wave in the world. So uh, that was my main motivation for sticking with it. And, and I'm glad I did. I'm, um, I'm happy that we have a film now and we can we can share her story in documentary form. You know, I thought I knew what to expect in your documentary. 
And I got that. I mean, it's a documentary about surfing. So beautiful cinematography, incredibly high, frightening waves, a beautiful athletic surfer with an amazing talent. But what I didn't expect was the intimacy that you were able to capture with Maya and her family, especially the introduction of her activist father, Fernando Gabera, and her very strong mother, uh, Yame Reyes. The film even veered into mental health with Maya's anxiety after the accident. How are you able to win their confidence? Yeah, Maya is actually a very open and candid person. And that's uh, some of the qualities that I love about her. She was very welcoming when I first asked to come and film her um, back, you know, 10 years ago when she took me on a first surf trip in Mexico. And I remember her telling me that, you know, she had a therapist and she had, you know, she had to go for an appointment with a therapist. And I thought, wow, that's very honest and um, direct. That's not something, you know, that an American person would tell you off the bat. And I think... I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if Brazilian people are more comfortable talking about their feelings and mental health than Americans. That's that's one of my theories, at least. But um, I also think very, Maya is a very um, candid and open person. And I remember telling her um, in the beginning of the filmmaking process, I said, look, I'm going to be around for a long time. This is um, this is a long road we're going to be on. And she said, yeah, yeah, I get it. And um you know, I don't think she realized that, you know, it was going to be years and years, much less a decade. But um, with with all that time comes a lot of trust. And so I think that is one of the strengths of the film is that we had a lot of trust in each other. And um, Maya was willing to share a lot of her her personal life, which I think is creates a very true and honest, authentic story. The sexism in the documentary is absolutely infuriating. Everyone thinks of surfers as being, you know, laid back individuals. But hearing her male counterparts talk about Maya as a sex object or as a woman who should leave the big waves to men was disgusting. The World Surf League certainly comes across as an organization that is a major boys club, deliberately ignoring Maya's triumphs over giant waves, even though she was outperforming many of the male surfers. Were you surprised at the extent to which they ignored her prowess? Yeah, I was actually surprised because um, I had thought maybe naively that you know, a female first is a terrific human accomplishment. And generally, we have celebrated those. We've, you know, we've celebrated the first woman in space. We've celebrated uh, the first woman up Mount Everest. We've celebrated, you know, Amelia Earhart. So, you know, eventually those those individuals have been recognized. And I think um, in this case, what I what I didn't understand is that it was probably extremely difficult for those people to make those um, first ascents for women in history. And we didn't know behind the scenes actually what it took for that to happen. And that's um, that's what you're seeing in Maya's film is um, the struggle behind a female first. And, you know, it's probably much harder uh, to make those accomplishments than we realize. So, you know, I, I was surprised and because I think, what a great story. Doesn't any, you know, of course we celebrate, um, you know, female triumphs. We've, we've done it historically, but I think this film helps you realize that um, it's actually been quite a struggle for many of those women to become recognized. Stephanie, it must have been incredibly hard to pare down this documentary down to 95 minutes. Could you share with us how you worked with your editor to condense the miles of footage you must have had? We edited this film for almost three years. We had some stops and starts because of COVID and personal things. The film was edited by Jordana Berg, who's a wonderful editor in Rio, and later by Shannon Kennedy in Boston, two um, brilliant, brilliantly talented editors. So it's really their work shining as far as the editing in the film. Um, as far as the process, it was my wonderful assistant editor, Tamiris Lorenzo, who is um, 
from Rio and she watched all the footage. We had a huge amount of footage and it was very difficult to pare it down. So she um, made the first selection of everything and that selection was given to uh, Jordana and Jordana made a first cut of the film, which all of this took at least you know a year and a half. And at that point we had a rough cut and we wanted to refine it further. So um, Jordana had to leave for another job and uh, Shannon Kennedy in Boston picked up the film. And you know we continued working on shaping the story and the structure and the music and the timing and the pacing. And um, it, was a, it was a long road. They worked very hard. I'm, I'm very proud of their work. And um, I think that the film is well edited and it's really due to two, two extremely talented um, very seasoned uh, editors, Jordana Berg and Shannon Kennedy. Maya and the Wave is making its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. Share exactly how you're feeling about that. I am so excited to have Maya and the Wave premiering in Toronto. It's a filmmaker's dream. And, you know, in my mind, there are, there are three premier festivals on planet Earth, uh, Toronto, Cannes, and Sundance. And uh, Toronto is one of the most exciting of those festivals, and it's really a dream to be selected. It's an honor, and we're just so excited to be here. We, we can't wait to share the movie. We've been, we've been working on it so long, and we, we can't wait to show it to people and um, finally have it out in the world. We're excited. You're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. This is Donna G. And I'm here to speak with Mbiti Masia about his short film, Baba, which is screening in program two of the Shortcuts program at the Toronto International Film Festival. Mbiti, welcome to CIUT, my radio station. Welcome from wherever you are. Where are you? Thank you very much. I am speaking to you from Nairobi, Kenya, on the eastern side of Africa. Your film, Baba, is beautiful but difficult to watch. I'm sure you expected that, correct? Yes. Yes, I did. Now, I have to let my listeners know that it does involve child abuse, just so that they have the heads up, because I have a lot of friends who would be triggered if they didn't know. So, Baba, tell us why you needed to make this film, because it couldn't have been easy for you to do. Yeah, it it, it wasn't. Uh, And not just for myself, but for a few people who I also spoke with before I made the film, um, who had troubling experiences from their childhood. And so, you know, the point of the film and the story for me was also not just to revisit the harsh reality of abuse, you know, the act itself, which is why it's not even on screen, nothing happens on screen. Um, but instead, just kind of revisiting these cycles of different kinds of violences that were propagated in a lot of the families that I grew up around. And, you know, just seeing how violence mutates and transfigures people and changes its nature going from sexual to physical to all these other kinds of violence. And as I said, uh, it's not on screen, um, but it's, it, it felt necessary uh, to just document. And I feel like to help that kind of experience or people who have gone through that kind of experience feel seen. So it's not that the film is offering answers or solutions to this problem. Of course, you can do that to the short film, but I was just hoping to help some people who might have gone through this feel seen. You're the director and you're also the writer. Uh, yes. Tell me how you worked with your cameraman, or is it in your screenplay? Because they're, as you said, those horrific scenes are not seen, but we know what's going on by what you by what you intimate. Was that in your screenplay? Did you develop that with your uh, cameraman? How did that work? Yeah, so I I um, I come from a very visual background. I worked, you know, as an art director, and uh, visuals are very important to me. So there was a lot of it that was in the screenplay, and. A lot of the reasons why I also didn't present the violence on screen is because of the nature of how it happens in homes, where it's never down a sinister, 
you know, um, dark basement corridor, but it's always in the normal corridor of a, of a home in a normal room and all of that. And so I really wanted to present these spaces that typically in like a family movie would be warm and exciting, but also carry this darker side to them when these kind of things happen in these spaces. So there was a lot uh, of thought put in in the screenplay. And then now also as we were shooting the film, uh, there's, there's a lot of thought that just went into how to translate those images that I had seen now onto screen. And then one last thing was that we, because the film, I wanted to base it a lot in nostalgic feelings rather than fact. So a lot of this stuff is representative of growing up in the early 90s in Nairobi, even though it might not feel like it. But if you grew up in Nairobi, everything on screen means something <laughs> to you. Um, and I didn't want to stereotypically play uh, with time. So what I did was, you know, I wanted to make it feel like a photo album. You know, those old ones when you flip the pages, how every image just carries a lot of weight, a lot of memory, but sometimes those memories are heavy and dark. Yes, you said that very well. You encapsulated everything that I felt um, watching, for example, the camera pull away from a door, um, mm. watching subtle shifts in the scenery and how the characters move. Tell me about this extraordinary little boy who plays Baba, where did you find him? Yeah, so what was funny, you know, I, I, <laughs> I've watched a lot of uh, behind the scenes commentary for films that have kids, and they're always like, we looked for, like we saw 20,000 kids before we found the right one. He was literally the first one who walked into the door for casting. And <laughs> it was one of those things that, cause I did an improv casting process rather than them reading a page. I was in the room with them kind of playing off each other. And mm -hmm. he he was perfect because I think my approach with casting kids is find the one closest to the energy of the character you're looking for rather than getting an actor to act. It's it's easier to do that. And so this child, Malik Wandera, is something special because he's one of those who you stare at him and it feels like he's telling you a million things just with his eyes. Yeah. It feels like <laughs> there are a thousand stories in there. And he's so relaxed and contemplative. So even as a film set is happening, he's just there looking and staring and taking it all in. And you're just like, is he okay? Is he happy? Is he sad? <laughs> you know, in the beginning, before I, I got to, uh, you know, like through the casting process, before we got to flow, it was always like, is he okay? I can't tell, you know? Uh, but yeah. then now finally we synced our energies and I just realized he's just a very contemplative child and which was exactly what I was looking for. Yes, he's he's incredible. Now, how much of the script does he know about? How much of what's so, going on in the story does he know about? So what his father decided was, because his father was a chaperone from set, was to be honest with him uh, to the degree that he could understand. So he knew bad things were happening here or there but the father didn't explain exactly what the bad things were. The father chose, because I defer to parents in terms of how much they want to tell their kids. Because mm -hmm. also for me, I was like, thankfully we're not doing anything physical. So there's no need. He's, I didn't want to traumatize him for no reason, you know, like exactly. for the sake of art. So the, I left that in the hands of the dad because as much as everything was happening on set, it was very simple instructions for Malik. It was just like, you're going from here to there. So now you're going to look at your cousin. That's it. I'm not putting context behind mm -hmm. the look for Malik. Mm -hmm. um, but then the father did explain to Malik that the story, what the story is generally about, um, because they have had such discussions about Malik himself, you know, calling out to the parents if anything was ever to happen anywhere. So he's aware of that kind of stuff generally. Okay. Yes. But we didn't go into the depth of what kind of actions people do yeah um how old was he at the time of the shooting he was eight going on nine mm -hmm. I believe. yeah yeah so just a bit older than the age of the character in the story yeah just because yeah. he, he understands things a bit more 
Right. Then then a six year old would. Exactly. Um, the where did you shoot? So we shot um, in Nairobi, just the outskirts of Nairobi, an area called Bong Hills, which is the hills you see, uh, which were always like a fantasy place for me as a kid <laughs> because they're like kind of the outskirts of the, the city and they feel far, but they're not. And we have these beautiful turbines and everything, so it was really nice. And then we shot at the coast, uh, which is right on the east of Kenya, a coast called Malindi, which is a deserted beach that I, because I, I go on adventures across this country, uh, I found a few years ago uh, with my wife, and it was one of those beaches that I wish I knew as a kid. It felt like, because it was empty, like no one, there's no one for miles, and it just felt like a place I'd have wanted to run away to. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which Baba does. It's his place of safety. And, exactly. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's like I'm yeah. sitting here in my apartment in Toronto thinking, I want to be on that beach with Baba. <laughs> you know, it's like, exactly. I want to, yeah, I want to take him in my arms and protect him, you know, and play on the beach with him and just do children things you know, little boy yeah. things with him. But you also uh, demonstrate in the film the cycle of abuse because there is some understanding of why the cousin is abusing this young boy. How did everyone, how did you, you have a small cast. How did the actors feel about this film and the cycle yeah. of the trauma? Yeah, I think for me the most the ones i had to have proper understanding with the most were the boys first so uh you know of course with malik and his father through his father and then uh the other cast kevin the cousin uh he, he's played by victor who is actually 18 over 18. so i was able to have full conversations with him he just looks younger because he's playing uh mm -hmm. He's playing a 14 year old but 14, yeah he, he's 18 and it's i had full disclosure conversations with him and about the nature of what violence is and you know my goal in this because also i think it's a, a little two-dimensional thing that happens in cinema where that kind of that like that character would be portrayed as evil like born from birth evil not yes exactly in a way that happens is that they're made a lot of the time. I'm not saying there are no psychopaths, but a lot of the time there's a little cycle. And so for, for, for myself and Victor, when we were approaching his character, the idea was just that there was probably another older cousin who did the same to him, yes. if not a much older relative. And what that usually does at that age, even at Baba's age, it kind of distorts what these actions mean. So these are not sexual activities, they're more <laughs> they're the a, res a response a response exactly. to the it's a response to to the issue um, exactly. it's like uh because kevin is taking uh the brunt of the beatings for things that you know that baba does in his innocence you know so you can see the resentment that's building up and the only way that he can express it is through um you know traumatizing uh baba but you can also see from him that he's been through something similar. It's like, it's almost like he accepts his fate. It's like, this is my life. This is what happens to me. And this is what I do. Exactly. And, you know, and even going to the mothers, uh, what the discussions I had with them, because, you know, I also didn't want them to be one dimensional, although the short film doesn't give them time to explore that. If it was a longer film, we would have, uh, you know, there's even a, throwaway line they mentioned their father in a negative light because he was abusive and that's how he chose to approach it to the mothers and because they're sisters and yes idea was each of them kind of took responded to that violence of their father in a different way where one doesn't realize she became that violent that's why she's acting on kevin that way because in her head she's keeping kevin from turning into her father but she's doing that by being extremely violent. And then yes. the other one is almost being blind to everything that's happening because that's how she grew up. She just needed to shut her eyes to all the violence that was around her. 
And so at the same time, she knows. Exactly. She you know, knows. And that's why she's she's trying to it's almost like willfully blind herself, although yes. Yeah. Something is telling because her. when she says to Baba, you know you can tell me um if anything, you know, is bothering you, if anything is wrong. She knows, but she's not able to act. So exactly. that's her response, whereas her sister's is to beat and, yeah. you know, beat thinking you're correcting, uh, but going too far. Um, it's an interesting family dynamic. Um, but as I said, it is a beautiful film. So uh, tell me about you. working with your the cinematographer on this. Or was it just easy yeah. because the location was beautiful? <laughs> no, it was... Um... As I said, you know, we had that jumping off point. Uh, in fact, the conversation I said even before uh, working with the cinematographer, my producer, I told him I really wanted to capture that nostalgic feeling, but not in a way that makes stuff look retro. But I was trying to get to just what that feeling was when I look at old photo albums, like when I visit my parents, and what is that feeling I'm getting when I look at these pictures of us as kids, you know, us just standing in. You know, 90s photos weren't as cool as nowadays. You're just like kids just made to stand in front of the house or in front of the car. <laughs> Pictures are taken and everything. So we were just Aditi, looking for I'm that. A, Aditi, I'm, I'm a lot older than you. I was in those ah. pictures. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> just not sure if the listeners are <laughs> aware. But yeah, you know, exactly. You know those kind of pictures. And so from that conversation now, it just became just... A question it was more even a question of doing less uh with the cinematographer mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. who uh he we've, he's shot uh he's from sweden but he's worked a lot in kenya uh and so we had a lot of the conversations just about how to just do less but to capture a lot of that atmosphere and emotion in some of those shots because so that's why it's very static and not so you know it's not that they move that much but yeah yeah we hope to capture and, the feeling yeah and the sound design was good too as well yes yeah that was another thing where in the film work i do i feel like sound is just as important as visuals so there was a lot of work we did on the sound design because i also wanted just almost everything sound hyper real and just really um just to really immerse you in the world yeah and bt i could talk about about this film for longer than your film. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That means a lot, actually. That really means a lot. Will you be Will you be able to come to Toronto for the screening, or? Yes, I or... will. I am leaving Kenya. I'm leaving Nairobi tomorrow night, and I will be there for one week in Toronto. Wonderful. Looking uh, forward to it. So, thank you so much for doing this interview. And I Thank really you. appreciated your film and people should should see it, you know, Thank and you. Um, I think they will realize that there's something in there that they recognize that's going around going on around them as well. And you were Thank very, you. I thought you were very respectful of your characters, despite the subject matter. There was a respect there that you didn't turn them into. Uh, as you said, villains, and I appreciated that. And that's what made it um, a bit easier for me to watch the film because it wasn't exploitative at all. So thank you for that. Thank you. It means a lot. And thank you for taking the time to watch it with such consideration. It means a lot. Have you ever been at TIFF before? I have. This is actually my second. I had a feature film uh, that I showed at TIFF in 2016 to spoil mm -hmm. and this is yeah my comeback <laughs> so okay so welcome back to toronto thank you thank you <laughs> toronto is actually my first ever film festival because uh film is a relatively new career for me i switched lanes <laughs> that then that's extraordinary that you got in with your first yeah. film it's not yeah. easy it's not easy and I, now you're i don't know how that happened <laughs> I'll have to try and track down Kati Kati, see if I can uh, see if I can watch it. So thank you. Thank you. This is how we talk.
taught ourselves not to get too caught up in the lives of those around us. Concrete walls surround us. No more feeling, no more pain. Replace it all with entertainment. Living someone else's life. You don't have to sacrifice. It takes so much work. Everything to really connect and know you're alive. But if you don't love, then you won't see. And if you don't see, you won't be angry. We keep our heads down and our mouth shut, and we let it all stay messed up. And this world of complacency gets in me. Live our lives. 